Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Don't Miss This Podcast, a Come Follow Me study with Emily Bell Freeman and David Butler. We fill this show up with all the things we think you don't want to miss in the scriptures every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Butler. I'm Grace Freeman. Welcome to your Don't Miss This class. <laughs> you guys, we're this so is, happy we're here. Yeah, we're take two right now, just so you know. We are take two. <laughs> Good thing we didn't get too far into the other one. So true. 30 um, seconds. You guys, you're really happy today because today's week's reading is really little. <laughs> Second <laughs> oh, Nephi woo. 1 and 2 is just like a baby little intro to Second Nephi and Great time to catch up, by the way, if you're trying to like finish the whole book or whatever. Or great not. time to start because it'll be really easy. Yeah. You're just going to be like, oh, your first week. I, I can do this every week. Yeah. This will be so easy. Uh, as a reminder, we have all of our segments divided up into kind of the days of the reading. We're taking the weekly schedule from Come Follow Me, and then we just divided it up into seven segments. So you got one, two, three, four, five for Monday, Tuesday, Friday. Monday through Friday, and then Saturday, Sunday is the very last segment. It's like six and seven together, just a little one at the end that we do. So um, we go through the Book of Mormon and point out things we think you don't want to miss, and uh, we're super happy that you're here. So settle on in, get your scriptures, or you might be on a walk. So um, you can't so wait. <laughs> settle on in mentally. We're calling today the good part. It's one of the best phrases that you're going to find, I think it's in the very last section. So The very last verse of all of it. Actually. It really might be. Yeah. Yeah. So, so We're starting with the end. It's yeah, fine. The end in mind. Um, these chapters, by the way, are, they're kind of a father, a dad's goodbye, a father's final words to his uh, boys, his family, his daughters, sons, his wife, and grandkids. I think you, you want to maybe put yourself there in that place as you read these words, because I think that Really, I, I remember my grandfather saying to me one time when we were blessing Jones, um, kind of took me aside and he said, you won't know what that phrase joy in your posterity means until you're standing in the blessing circle of your great grandson. And it just made me think about how there's things I haven't lived yet. There's some, there's some lessons only time can give. There's some lessons only experience can give. I'm not diminishing my experiences and the lessons that I've learned, but to hear it from a, a man who lived it, who's like, I've lived it, I've tasted it, I've experienced it, I've, and, and here is how I would do life the same way I've done, or here's how I would do life differently. And I just think the advice becomes really valuable because of who it's coming from. And I think it says something. This time when I read it, I really did just like imagine like a dad sitting down on a little stool with his kids and just being like, hey, before I go, like I just want you to know this. These are the last things, like hold on to this. And even there's a moment that I'm just like, oh, this is what he wanted to be remembered by. Mm -hmm. Because it's not like they could go back and look at pictures. And it's not like they had videos on their phone that they could be like, oh, that's who dad was. Like in the end, it was going to be these conversations that they probably remembered the most. Right. And it makes me want to be like, oh, he actually thought these things were something worth remembering. Mm. So I feel like it makes me all of a sudden be like, whoa, I actually really need to think about this. Right. Right. I want to study this better. Yeah. And especially from someone who you would choose to be a spiritual mentor. 
there's not, I mean, you wouldn't give that position to anybody in your life if all these people were applying, you know? Yeah. But someone from what I know about him, Lehi would be a great spiritual mentor to me. And I would be interested to know, teach me. I, I want, I want to know. I, I, I remember this other time, um, Everyone's like, we got it, we get it. <laughs> They're like, move on. But I did sit with this man once, and he was, uh, in hindsight, just three or four days away from dying. And I sat by his bed. I was his bishop at the time, and I was like 35 or 30, young 30s. And he was in his 80s and had beaten cancer twice and, and uh, all these experiences. And I we sat down on his bedside because he wanted to have a temple recommend before he died. So one last interview. And then the question I asked him was, "If what can you teach me? What, what can you teach me about living, living, uh, you know, anything you want to say? What do you want to say to me? And that was a really sweet conversation that we, that we had together. And so I always picture him when I, and he was a spiritual mentor to me. He was one who had overcome demons, who had um, uh, lived in grace, uh, just um, served well. Just the things I saw that he did, I I, I was like, man, I I, wa- I wanna I wanna learn from you. And I think everything we just said really could have been said in one sentence about like what's going on in the story. Oh, the dad was dying. These are the last final words. But this is how scripture comes to life for me. Is right. when I actually stop and it becomes a real story. And I can imagine a dad sitting down or on his bed talking to someone for one last time. That's scripture. It's a story. It comes to life when it actually becomes like, whoa, this is a family. This is what they were doing. Yeah. You know? And I think that's one of the greatest scripture study skills. And we've probably said that before. But just to use your imagination is a really powerful scripture study skill. Fill in the blanks of what's happening. So. The first day's reading is just nine verses, 2 Nephi 1 through 9. We're, and we're calling this look back because it's what Lehi asks the boys to do. And starting in verse 1, it says, Nephi says, I made an end of teaching my brethren, and our father Lehi also spake many things unto them and rehearsed unto them how great things the Lord had done for them in bringing them out of the land of Jerusalem. And I just, there's something really valuable about every so often pausing and taking a look back and, and you know, this is not deja vu. No, you haven't seen this episode. This is a common theme in the book. It's one of the things that I think the writers of the book of Mormon want us to do is to take time to catalog the goodness of God in our life. Remember how good he's been. Remember the goodness and the greatness of God. Um, you're going to see that come up again and again in and throughout scripture. We So last week we talked about the, that idea that lady had about keeping track of her tender mercies. And we actually did that as a family last year on this little flip calendar that we had. And during this week, we dumped it out and we went through them and opened it up and just... See? And just like oh. the highlights of the year and and just the funny that things. That makes me want to go 365 and... days in reverse so I could have done that. I'm so happy for you. Keep yeah. going. And I just, it was just really, really fun. And we laughed so hard. 
And I just love that bit of advice from him. And I just want you to see all the things he says to count. Count the great things he says. I like in verse 2, he says, he's spoken to them concerning their rebellions upon the water. And they're sort of like, thanks, Dad. Why are you going to bring that up? But the reason he does is because of the mercies of God and sparing their lives. He's like, we should have been swallowed up in the sea. In verse 3, he says, and what about we? he brought us to this land of promise. Let's look back. When we were in our tents in the wilderness and we thought to ourselves, is God really able to do this? You are now sitting in a place as a witness that he does. This is a God who keeps his promises. Look back. Remember when you thought he couldn't do it and compare it to, to sitting on the land of promise right now, recognizing that he, that he did and he, and he does. How merciful he was in warning us that we should flee out of the land of Jerusalem. In verse 4, he says, we should also have perished. Like we didn't, we didn't, like he rescued us. Your mom was telling me that her Sunday school teacher um, kind of talked about that the Book of Mormon begins not from the words of a prophet, but from the words of someone listening to a prophet. And I, I, I wrote in my margins here, it reminds me of the Passover because they were given a rescue revelation. Um, and God does those. God gives us rescue revelation. And he said, you can stay in Jerusalem and you can experience the plague that will come upon this city, or you can wipe the blood over your doorstep, or you can build a ship and, and leave. And it's um, God rescued them. And they listened to that revelation and they experienced the rescue of it. And Lehi saying, let's look back and remember what God did for us. Which I think is so beautiful. Lehi had a really hard life and not just kind of hard. Like the beginning of the Book of Mormon talks about how people were looking for him so they could murder him hard. Yeah. That's his story. So deeply hard watching his kids hurt each other's feelings and actually physically hurt each other and sending his boys off to go get the plates. His life was not easy, even in the slightest. But if you look back at how he just reflected on his life, these are the words he uses. Great things, mercies of God, a land of promise, merciful, the Lord is merciful. That's how he described his life, which is wild to me that he has one of the hardest lives I could possibly imagine. And those were the words he used to describe it. And I think it's just because he's deliberate about it. He's just decided to look for the great, to stop in his life, pause and look back at the great things that God has done. I made this little list on the board. If you're listening um, or if you're watching, <laughs> whoever, if you're, listening, everyone. If you're listening, you can't see it. Well, just a list. And you might want to go through and mark some of those things that he does. Some of those words that Grace was just saying. One last one uh, or two last things. In verse five, I, I like that he says, notwithstanding our afflictions, we obtained a land of promise. We did experience hardship. Some of it was our fault. And some of it was not, but notwithstanding all of those afflictions, we still, in the end, uh, God still brought us to this place in the end. That he is a God who will overcome obstacles, whether we put them in the way or whether they're just in the way because of life or circumstances, we made it. And then he says this, the land, this, the Lord hath covenanted this land unto me and to my children forever. And you see that word one other time in verse seven, forever. And I just love to believe in a God who blesses generationally, who says, 
I, I will not stop blessing you, your kids, your grandkids, your great grandkids. I am a gen a, a God who blesses generationally. Um, I said one other thing, but I lied because verse six, <laughs> I just want you to mark this phrase. I, Lehi, prophesy according to the workings of the spirit, which is in me. I just love that phrase, the workings of the spirit in me, because here's a man we can look back and some of his faults are actually recorded in the story. We don't have all of them and his successes and his dreams and his visions and, and uh, his feelings and emotions. And I just love that, that phrase, the workings of the spirit. He's like, I've been a man who the spirit has been working on and I'm figuring it out and I'm still figuring it out. And I just love that idea of the spirit just working in us and through us as a as I, I think this is right English as a present progressive word, the workings of the spirit it now and continually in me and, and I think through. in English class right yeah, then yeah. you said that. I'm like, it's a Whoa. two for one, everybody. And I just, now that I'm actually thinking about this, I didn't think about this before, but I think it's really cool that if this is a dying man's words, if this is his last piece of advice when he is talking about reflecting on his life, which was a very difficult one, and these are the words he used to describe it, and then all of a sudden he's saying, the Spirit was working in me this entire time. It makes me begin to think, in my days when I'm living in pessimism and I'm just so frustrated and all I can see is the bad, it makes me want to open my heart to the Spirit. Because maybe his reflection looked different because he was reflecting with the Spirit. Mm. And the Spirit said, wait, look at actually what God did. Yeah. There was way more good than bad. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I want to take his advice. I want to take someone who has lived a much greater, longer, more prosperous life than mine. And maybe the key is living with the Spirit. Mm. That's advice I want. Yeah, that's so awesome. So awesome. He ends that little section by giving just a really simple formula that you will see throughout the whole book. The promise is if you will just listen and follow the commandments of God, you will prosper in this land. And you will see that come up again and again and again. It's a, it's a simple formula and it includes that notwithstanding. Notwithstanding our afflictions. Like there, it doesn't mean there won't be afflictions because there will. There will be afflictions. Some of them your fault, some of them just there. But that formula is still, in conjunction with that, is still a trustworthy formula. If you will follow the advice, loving counsel, commandments, and guidance of God, you will prosper in the land you are in. Beautiful. The next day's reading, we're calling Infinite Goodness, and it is about to win your heart, just so you know. The next verse is the first verse of this section, 2 Nephi 1, 10 through 19. Might be one of the verses that I had forgotten about, like, until I just read it again. And now, in my head, I'm like, this has to be my favorite verse of my whole entire life. Like, I have to just cling to it. And verse 10 actually starts in a moment of un, like disbelief. And it says, but behold, when the time cometh that they shall dwindle in unbelief. And it's talking about like posterity and all of this stuff, but it makes me think for me, because I will be honest, there are moments when I dwindle in unbelief. 
and I'm like, I don't really know about this and I'm doubting this or that and I am uncertain. I have been there. I have lived in that. And all of a sudden, this verse comes to life for me when I think about those moments in my life because what it's going to say is after the moment of unbelief, then when they are dwindling in that, it's actually going to be after they have received so great blessings from the hand of the Lord. They knew him. They had received his blessings. They knew of his goodness, having a knowledge of the creation of the earth and all men, knowing the great and marvelous works of the Lord from the creation of the world. They had seen what he had done, having power given to them to do all things by faith. They had seen miracles wrought in their lives, having all the commandments from the beginning and having this part, mark this, highlight it, circle it, having been brought by his infinite goodness into this precious land of promise. Infinite goodness, circle that 800 million times. That's what I have to do in my scriptures. And it made me pause because these people are going to reject Jesus, reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer and their God, the one of infinite goodness. And it made me stop and just think for a second. When I dwindle in unbelief, Before I walk away, I need to remember who I'm walking away from. Mm -hmm. And it is actually someone of infinite goodness. Someone I know. Someone that has given me great blessings. Who has brought miracles into my life. Who actually is the Holy One of Israel. The Most Holy. The True Messiah. The One that came to rescue me. My Redeemer. My God. That's who I'm walking away from when I choose to walk away. And I think it's sometimes easy for me to just think in my head, like, this seems too hard today. God actually asks a lot of me. It overwhelms me. I don't think I can do that anymore. When I think like that, this verse reminds me, I'm walking away from him. The one that is good. The most good. That was good yesterday, today, and will forever be good. I don't want to walk away from him. I want that in my life deeply. Yeah, and that verse one, I'm just kind of coming back to it, where he just says, the great things. You could stop there. Remember the great things, but I wouldn't. I would keep going through. That's an incomplete phrase. It's the great things the Lord has done. There's Great things aren't just happening. They're coming because of the love, compassion, merit, merits, mercy, merits, <laughs> grace of, of a, a holy person, a father, a savior, a, a both, you know? And I, I think that's like really beautiful to bring it back to. Don't count blessings. Like go one step up. Where did they come? Who did they come from? Mm. What's going to happen in verse 13 is he's going to start giving this advice. And I think the word that he uses for the advice is very important. He's going to say, oh, that you would awake, awake from a deep sleep. He uses the word awake so many times in the Mm -hmm. next few verses. I've circled every single one of them. And it makes me think when you are asleep, you are living in a false reality. Your dreams are not what's actually happening. And your dreams actually could make life seem better or make life seem worse. Either one. And it's interesting to me that he says, wake up because real life, your real life God is better than what you could dream up. Wake up and meet him. 
His goodness is better than anything you could dream up in your head. Wake up and meet him. He is that good. And he goes through, he says, awake, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell. Satan's going to try to make you think that God is not as good as he says he is. Hmm. Wake up. He is. He's just that good. Shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound. You are carried away down cap way captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. What you think is actually going to trap you. Awake and arise from the dust and hear the words of a trembling parent. Listen to me because I know him. I have met him throughout my entire life. I know who he is. And I know that when you wake up, he will be better than anything you could have dreamt up in your head. The next verse, verse 15 is absolutely wild to me because David just taught me something way smarter than I ever even realized that it meant. <laughs> so now David should teach you because it's about to be good. Oh, 15 is both of one of our, our favorite verses. If you look at our scriptures, this is the one because he's just saying, he's almost kind of saying goodbye. But that line that you just said, but I, I know him. I've experienced relationship and life with him. You're listening to the devil. And what has he done for you? What good can you count that he has like brought into your life? What advantage has he brought? But I'm telling you, as your dad, I I've been there since day one. I rocked you to sleep when you were a baby. I I've, I've been committed to your welfare and goodness for longer than you have memories. And listen to me. He says, I'm about to die. If it were all fake, this is when I would just clue you in. I'm getting no advantage of, from this. And he says this, But behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I've beheld his glory, and I'm encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. I really love in this verse that you see a past, present, and future redemption. He says, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell, past tense. I have beheld his glory and am encircled, both present tense. Uh, uh, well, beheld, I guess, is past. It's fine. I am. The am is present, encircled about eternally future in the arms of his love. God's been there in the past. He's there in the present, and he will be there in the future. One that I'm most intrigued about in this verse is this past tense. The Lehi is speaking as if redemption has already happened. Now, he's at the end of his life, but he's not there in heaven yet. Um, he hasn't done everything that he would want to do or he wished he could do. He's still a work in progress, but he speaks about his redemption in past tense. And I, we just made this little slide for y'all. And this is not a complete list, but it is a large list of other times in the Book of Mormon where that word, just that word redeemed, then you can go and look it up with saved also, is used in past tense as people are speaking about that word as if it's already happened because it already has for them. There's nothing more that they need to do to be redeemed. Christ has already redeemed us. We are living in the present with the idea that redemption has already happened. We're living in a past, present, future, like safe hold 
in the arms of his love. And that's going to keep coming up throughout the Book of Mormon. That it's like, it's a, it's a concept called justified by faith, that you are already saved. Uh, can you still become and grow and progress into someone more like Jesus is? Absolutely. Yes, we call that the path of exaltation. But the saving, the redemption has already happened. And I think sometimes when we hear that, we think it's too good to be true. It is. Exactly. Like, it's, you can't even imagine. No way. In my head, instantly, it's just like, no way. Right. There's no way that actually could be true. And that's what this entire section is all about. That in reality, that is too good to be true. The fact that we are already redeemed, He wants to save us. The fact that He will bless us in our mess. The fact that he is good yesterday and today and tomorrow with no, what is that even called? Hindrance, like on how we behave. He is just good to his core. He will save us over and over. He will be our Messiah. He will be our individual God. I love when it says that in verse 10. That seems too good to be true. So much so that if we're living in that unbelief for so long, it makes it easy to walk away. Mm. And it really is easy to walk away if you don't know him. If you're sleeping on who he is. Mm. And I love that this is a father's plea to wake up. Mm. Because who he is is better than anyone you could ever dream up. He is better. He is more good. He is more kind. He is more gracious than anything you could ever imagine. And if you wonder if that's true, ask someone you love to help him get, help, whoa, to help you get to know him. Because he will surprise you with his goodness. Mm. It will be better than imaginable. Yeah, so awesome. Okay, the next day's reading is verses 20 through 27. And this section sort of kind of go. Well, obviously it goes off the last one because it comes right after them, but um, it starts again in verse 20 with that same promise. So again, again, that simple formula. If you would just keep his commandments, you will prosper in the land. He will prosper you. That's his intention and that's his hope is to prosper you. That's what he wants to do first and foremost. But then in 21 through the rest of this one, 27, the, all these verses, um, I like to kind of think about this section as... Now it's his call to live as the redeemed. Jesus has redeemed you. He loved you. He loves you and will always love you. Wake up and live out your life in that truth. Live out your life in that love. Stop sleeping on the experiences that you can have with him and the experiences that you can have in this world as his disciples. Wake up and live. And he says, as men, he says, be men. And so I've kind of put up a couple verses of scriptures here, 21 through 27, and just went through and gave an example of what you might do in marking what it looks like to live as real men. He says, starting in verse 21 is where I'm getting that phrase. And he just says, man, I, I, what I would wish more than anything is that you would arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. And just gives them advice on how to live out as followers of God in this world. Be real men. He says, be determined. 
Be one in your mind and in your heart in a single cause and purpose to do good. Verse 23, awake. I like that he says, my sons. Every time there's the word my in scripture, I can't get over it. You know, he's just like, you're my boys. Like, I care about you. This advice is because I care. It's the best disguised I love you ever. Yeah. Yes. When you claim, it's a claim word. Put on the armor of righteousness. Shake off the chains with which you are bound. Come forth out of obscurity. Arise from the dust. You're living in the in the muck of the world. You're not experiencing what God intended for you to experience. So get up off the ground. Shake off those chains. They're preventing you from experiencing what Scripture will call eternal life. The good life. The better part. Come live it with us. Don't rebel anymore against your brother. And then he starts to kind of describe uh, Nephi who lives as an instrument in the hands of God, who brought us forth to the land of promise. And if were it not for him, we, we would have perished. But you have tried to take away his life. But he, <laughs> and he suffered so much of it because of you. And he'll suffer again. You've accused him. But he hasn't wanted power or authority. This is what it looks like to be a real man. You don't look for power of authority. You look for the glory of God and other people's eternal welfare. It's a person who lives with the power of God in them. And when I was reading this about Lehi's description of this is what it looks like to be a, a real man, I realized that the description is one of Jesus. I actually thought of Pilate standing him on the balcony saying, behold the man. This is what it looks like to live as a man of God or, or, or a woman of God. The attributes would, could and would be similar. But especially this middle part here. He was an instrument in the hands of God and he brought us forth to a land of promise. Were it not for him, we would have perished. Nephi's getting the rhythm of his life from Jesus. You sought to take away his life. He suffered much and he'll suffer it again. You've accused him but he has not sought for power and authority. His only purpose was your eternal welfare and the glory of of God. I don't know what accusations you have against the Lord or against Jesus, but this is what he's like. And and rise up, follow in in his footsteps. Live with the power of God. Um, in you. And I really just love this little section as, as a call to live as uh, disciples of Jesus, to live as you've been redeemed. Now live as if it's actually true. And I love that you get both sides. That not only when you study this can you learn something about Jesus, but you get to learn something about your discipleship as well. And there's something so peaceful to me when I hear that, because sometimes when we talk about actions and what it looks like to be a disciple, it can feel so deeply overwhelming yeah. and that I am falling apart. And I'm like, oof, that is too much for me. I can't even do one of those things on that list, much less why did you give it to me all at once? But there's something about the fact that when you look at that list, Jesus already did it. You're not the one in charge of saving. 
Jesus did that part of the list. And I love when you look at that and you think about your own discipleship. It doesn't necessarily feel like these, this is a list of all the things that you're doing that you're falling apart at and you need to really step up. But more so for me, it's a list of looking at it and being like, Jesus did this. He's going to stand by me. He's going to walk by me. He's going to do this at the same time with me. He's done it. He can show me how. I'm not sure how to shake off my chains. He's the one that's going to do it. I'm not sure how to help people not perish. He will show me how to do it. I'm not sure how to stop rebelling, but he showed me how. I can do it because he did it first. Yeah. And you know what? This just sounds like someone who's experienced it. Someone who's tasted of eternal Mm -hmm. life. This is living out the vision of the tree of life. And he's saying to his boys, boys, uh, you're missing out on what it looks like to live as loved, redeemed disciples of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing I've ever done in my entire life was hand my heart over to him. And, and what we've experienced, we wouldn't have had we not handed our hearts over to him. And he's just calling them in to a greater, nobler, happier more beautiful and fulfilling way to live. Everyone gets to choose how they want to live out their life. And Lehi is teaching his boys, this is a better way to do it. The next day's reading is called The Blessing of With. It's 2 Nephi 1, 28 through 32. And this is the mini story of Zoram. It's his last words to Zoram. And some of you might be thinking in your head right now, if you're anything like me, remind me who Zoram is. Don't worry. We got you. That's the purpose. And you got to go back to 1 Nephi chapter 4 for this because it's when the boys are getting the plates that they actually meet Zoram. And I recently have been studying that again because we record before I teach this in seminary. And so I would like go back and forth, back and forth. But it made this chapter so much more sweet when I went back to 1 Nephi 4 and read that story because I get so confused when I read that and forget about 2 Nephi 1 why they had to go back so many times to try to get the plates. If God, it says in 1 Nephi 3, 7, God prepared a way. That's who he is for Nephi. He had it planned out. It was going to work. In my head, I just wanted to be like, well, then why didn't it work the first time? Why did they have to go back Mm -hmm. three times? Why couldn't the first plan have just worked if God already planned it? And it all makes sense if you know what happens in 2 Nephi chapter 1, because All of a sudden, it's going to say in verse 30, And now, Zoram, I speak unto you. Behold, thou art the servant of Laban. That's who you were. We found, my boys found you when they were going back to get the plates. Not the first time, not the second time, but the third time when it finally worked. They got the plates, but they got you too, Zoram. They got both. Nevertheless, you didn't start here. You weren't forced into this. You weren't just going with the family because you are our best friend. You have been brought out of the land of Jerusalem, and I know that thou art a true friend unto my son Nephi forever. And I can't help but think that maybe God's plan all along was that they had to go three times because he knew that Zoram was worth it. Mm. He knew that he was worth going back for. People are always worth going back for. People are always worth trying three times for. Zoram was. And I think that maybe God knew that at some point in Nephi's journey, he was going to need a real friend. 
when his brothers were being brutally rude to him. I wonder if God said, I planned for that. I knew you were going to need someone. I got you a friend. Before you knew that they were going to be so rude on the boat, I found someone to stand by you, a true friend. And I just love, and I would circle a true friend a million times in this part. I loved that God planned for Nephi to have a true friend. He said, no, I got someone for you. Don't worry. And that's the little tiny word, that little tiny square go. That's the oh. tender mercy for the week is going to be a true like friend this. for Nephi. And it's the cutest little picture of a hug. You just can't help but love it. It's also going to be the word for the week. Because you guys, this is just the best. You can't even help it. Yeah. And I know that thou art a true friend. And the 18, whoa, I just was going to have a little stutter right then. The Hold on, let me just show part, it. This on yeah, this, you're going to love finish it. Finish the first row. You, you love it. And also, this would be really cute, I think, if you are doing the tender mercies on the back to just go through with your family and say, everyone say, who has been a true friend for you? Mm-hmm. Who do you feel like God has given you as a true friend? Or if you don't have, if you didn't print out this and you have the posters, when yes. you just hang it up like on Sunday for the week, just let's think about all week long the people that God put. And if you into need help path. figuring out who they are, it's someone who entertains for another sentiments of esteem. It's someone who respects you, it's affection, which leads him to desire his company and to seek to promote his happiness and prosperity. And I just, I think God knows that journeys are hard. Mm. Whether that's a journey on a boat and getting plates and finding the promised land for Nephi, or whether that is high school or a football team or being a brand new mom or being a mom or a dad and all your kids have left the house and now you're sitting there and your journey is looking a little bit harder than you thought it was going to look. Maybe God planned a friend for you in that journey because he did for Nephi. And maybe that's something you can pray for or hope in or know is on the way because it seems like God can't help but do that. And that's actually his promise in this part. He's going to go through and he's going to say, wherefore, and this is in 2 Nephi 1, 31. Wherefore, because thou hast been faithful, thy seed shall be blessed with his seed. Zoram, you've been so faithful that not only do you and Nephi get to be friends, but all of your seed will be together as well. If they need a true friend, they will have one because of you guys. That's a promise from me. Mm-hmm. You will be with people. We need people in our journey. That's just true about life. And I think there's something really important. This is actually the worksheet for the week is going back to 1 Nephi 4 and comparing it to 2 Nephi 1. And there are so many important aspects of friendship that you are going to see in both of these chapters that you might just want to go through and study both separately and see what you learn. In 1 Nephi 4, you're going to see a boy who's willing to go with someone. That's what Zoram was to me in chapter 4. When Nephi said, come with me, he said, yeah, I'll go anywhere with you. Yeah. That's a true friend, you know? Mm-hmm. And when you look in 2 Nephi 1, 30-32, you can see... Oh, you're in this for the long haul with Nephi. Mm. Not just right now, but your posterity too. 
And maybe you want to go through and you want to start listing the characteristics that you see in chapter four, the characteristics that you see in chapter one. And maybe underneath, you want to just draw a line and you want to start making a list of maybe someone you feel like God has given you in your life or maybe what you're looking for in a true friend and start listing those underneath as well. But the thing about Zoram that wins me the most is I think Nephi actually invited him in to a journey of getting to know God. Because in chapter 4 of 1 Nephi, I think that was one of the earliest points in Nephi's relationship with God. And when he said, come with me, come follow us into the wilderness, I think that was an invitation to the wilderness, but it was also an invitation to be saved. Which sounds a lot like a journey with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, that friendship was not founded on convenience. It wasn't a friendship that was founded on desperation. And it could look like that for one second. But it actually was a friendship founded on a journey with Jesus. And I think I've found in my life that the friends that I've needed the very most, the friends that I've been the most desperate for, the friends that have changed me as a person, are the friends that have actually gone on a journey with me and Jesus. I've gotten to know Jesus better because of them. It looked like a companion on my mission that we sat down every single night and we would write where we saw God in our lives every single day. And when I heard her talk about God, I actually got to know him better. Mm. And a friend in high school, they would actually, we weren't even that close, but he would just send me texts randomly in the middle of the night asking questions about who God was. Bless his heart, like I knew him better than he did. No, but actually... I think those texts were an invitation to get to know God better, and I did because of them. And it looks like a friend reaching out that said, hey, I actually am not sold on this church thing and this Jesus thing, and I'm actually still trying to figure that out. And it was conversations that lasted till 2 a.m., and I would have stayed up till 5 a.m. with a wake-up call at 6.30 in the morning for, because when he talked about his journey, I actually got to know Jesus better. And I think there's something important in realizing that maybe our best friendships are the ones that we are journeying together, that we're trying to get to know Him better. And I love that God plans that in our journey. He says, this is going to be a tough road to get to know me. I know that. It's going to be messy and complicated and confusing, and you're going to need a little bit of help. But I promise to give you someone that will be with you that will ask you questions, that will help you get to know me better, that will actually have conversations with you that change your life, who will stick up for you when no one else is sticking up for you. That's the promise of the end of this chapter. Yeah, and, and there's that one on the flip side too. I think you can go back and forth between the two of them because I just, you said this line, you used to be the servant of Laban, but you've been brought out of the land of Jerusalem. And that's, that's, a, that's Nephi being the true friend there. You were that, but we brought, I brought you out of it. I helped you come out of that, right? Yeah. Like, um, that's, a, that's a Jesus phrase. Yes. You were once this, and now you are this. And sometimes he uses our friends, the people on the journey, um, as his hands, as his voice, as his heart to help us realize that, recognize that, and begin to live out a new us. And you might want to just circle that a true friend. And if it were me in my margins, I would actually make a list. And I haven't yet, but I'm going to. 
in just deep in your scripture, who have been those for you? You know, the what does that, that look like? Yeah, you know who, him better. Who yeah. are the ones that brought you out? Yeah, that like claimed you as said, no, listen, come with me. I will help you get to know God. Let's do this together. That makes me want to go through and make a list of leaders, of friends, of family. Who was my true friend that said, no, let me help you get to know him. Yeah, that's so awesome. Okay, the next day's reading is, begin 2 Nephi 2, 1 through 9. Oh, yeah. It's actually 1 through 14, everyone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was looking at this little flip thing, and I was like, wait a minute. It's actually 1 through 14. And before we move on to 2 Nephi 2, let me just, when um, we were getting that piece onto the um, Tender Mercies board, I forgot that we have a tip-in for oh, this yeah. week. At the beginning of every new book, there is one of the tip-ins. These tip-ins, uh, hopefully, are back in stock while you watch this. Um, but they, you can slide them into your scripture and it's sort of like scripture study helps. And it's just an overview of the book of um, Second Nephi and shows you some of the chapters that are sort of highlight spots. And then there's a blank space there where you can add more and even on the back when you put it on there, like, oh, this is a favorite verse, this is a favorite verse, just if you're just wanting to remember just the highlights of that book. So that goes in at the beginning of Second Nephi. I forgot to point that out. Now, 2 Nephi chapter 2, one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture, I think. And it just teaches like really, really valuable lessons to us. He's talking to Jacob now, who was born in the wilderness. And we didn't hear too much about them. He's going to come back a little bit later. But he was born after they've left Jerusalem. And he says to him, in your childhood, you've suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of your brethren. So you've lived a life of affliction, of sorrow and of rudeness, but also nevertheless, you also know the greatness of God and that great lesson that he will consecrate thine afflictions for your gain. I think that's great advice for times of Two things to remember in times of affliction, sorrow, and rudeness is that God is great and that he can take our afflictions and consecrate them for good. Those would be two great lessons to remember in our times of affliction. And he says in verse three, your soul will be blessed and you will dwell safely with thy brother Nephi. There's that blessing of with again. And thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. We get to see that lived out and fulfilled in future pages. I know thou art redeemed. There's that past tense, redeemed again. And when Grace said, we look at that word and, and it says, you've already been redeemed. And we say to ourselves, it's too good to be true. I'm not worthy of redemption. The answer to that's in the next, the next words right after it. Thou art redeemed, past tense, because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. That's why you're redeemed. That's going to come up again. But check out this little thing that's in verse 3 and 4. Um, For thou hast beheld that in the fullness of time he cometh to bring salvation unto men. Thou hast beheld in thy youth his glory. That is such a great line. This is not something that we have to wait till the end of our lives to experience. In your youth, you can experience the glory and the goodness of God. Wherefore, thou art blessed even as they unto whom he shall minister in the flesh. This is one of my favorite verses in scripture because I'm so 
uh, deeply invested in the New Testament and now watching The Chosen, you watch it and you wish that you could have been there. I wish I could have seen it. I want to watch him put his eyes on the blind boy's, um, I mean, his hands on the blind boy's eyes. I want to see him take that woman by the hand in the temple and lift her up and give her a new life. I want to see him cleanse the leper. I wish I would have been there. I wish I could have seen it. And Lehi teaches um, little Jacob, you are blessed even as they who he shall minister into, into the flesh for the spirits the same yesterday, today, and forever. You get to experience the same kind of healing, the same kind of miracles, the same kind of relationship with Jesus as if you'd been there as if you'd walked the roads together. That's one of the greatest truths in the Book of Mormon, that you aren't missing out on anything. And then this line, and the way is prepared from the fall of man and salvation is free. Start underlining these phrases because he's gonna teach this so well right here. Because he says, men are instructed sufficiently that they may know good from evil. Verse five, the law is given unto men and by the law, no flesh is justified. The law actually makes us realize how much we can't keep the law is what he's teaching there. By the temporal law, we are cut off. And by the spiritual law, we perish from that which is good and become miserable forever. None of us would be able to keep it on our own. The law was not given to us to prove how good we are. One of the intentions of the law was to show us, Paul taught, remember last year, that we can't do it. We aren't able to, to keep it on our own. But there's good news, he says in verse 6. Redemption cometh. Because of that, because we can't keep it on our own, redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself as a sacrifice for sins to answer the ends of the law. And unto all those, any of those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, the ends of the law will be answered. Anybody and everybody can be redeemed by the Holy One of Israel. Anyone who doesn't feel like they're enough, anyone who doesn't feel like they can do it, he says, good news, redemption comes because of him. Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth that they may know there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh and taketh it up again by the power of the Spirit to bring about the resurrection of dead, being the first that should rise, meaning that there will be many, many, many more after him. I looked up in that 1828 dictionary. That's what we used on the posters because that was the most recent dictionary at the time that the Book of Mormon was translated. So sometimes using that book might help us get a better, richer understanding of some of the words that are in here. And that line where it says that all flesh should know that no one can dwell in the presence of God save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. I looked up those three words, merits, mercy, and grace, and just check this out. Merits are the goodness or excellence which entitles one to honor. The goodness of excellence of Jesus that makes him worthy of our worship. 
a reward deserved. We, we, we will get to heaven and say, I don't deserve this. I know. The reward was deserved by the Holy One, the Messiah. That, that's who deserved it. And He gifted it to you. The mercy, you are going to die at this definition of mercy. That benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries mm. or to treat an offender better than he deserves. Oh, bye. When God is as good to you as he is, it will cause you to say, I don't deserve this. But the definition of mercy is the kind of heart and the kind of tenderness that overlooks injuries you may have caused and is willing and anxious to bless you beyond what you deserve. And grace is that free, unmerited love and favor of God, the spring and the source of all the benefits that men receive from Him. Or this definition, the application of Christ's righteousness to the sinner, where God says, I will see you as if you are, I will, I will, I will apply the righteousness of Jesus to you. That's what it means to be saved by the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy Messiah. It is too good to be true because it's undeserved. It's merciful. It's gracious. It's gifted to all of us. And that's why Lehi says, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth. We should send our boys and girls to the far ends of the globe to tell every single person in the world that the, the holy Messiah, who's full of grace and truth, offered himself as a sacrifice of sin so that you could live redeemed and encircled in the arms of his love, past, present, and future. You guys, I, Jack's flying us <laughs> on an airplane right now. You know, and I, and I, so my heart's a little bit tender. And to that verse, that verse is actually the verse that inspired me to serve as a full-time missionary was that verse eight, because I just thought, man, everyone in the world ought to know this. Everyone in the world ought to live knowing that someone laid their life down for them and that someone gifted them mercy and, and grace. People, sh people should know that. People should know that there's someone who loves them and is looking over them uh, that much. And that's the, that's the message Lehi's giving to, to Jacob. You are redeemed because of the righteousness of the Redeemer. Like, you get to live out your life knowing that someone cared that deeply for you. And could you imagine Lehi at the end of his life if he knew about Jack in the middle of Africa living out that verse? That kills me. Right. I'm like, he couldn't even believe it. He's so proud. He doesn't even know Jack. He's so proud of him. I'm like, oh, no, I just want to cry all day about Jack, you guys. I don't even know why. I just can't even think about it. I couldn't even look at David in that whole part because I was like, oh, I'm going to weep. Um, the next day's reading, we're calling it That They Might. And in 2 Nephi 2, 15 to 30, they're pretty much one of the most famous scriptures of all time is in this chapter. And we're going to get into all of that. But this chapter means a lot more when you remember who he was talking to. 
So I think we need to remember Jacob and a little bit about his personality before we unpack what Lehi wanted to say to him because it is so much more personal than we usually teach it. Because you need to go back to the beginning of chapter two and remember, first of all, Jacob's past, that he actually suffered so many afflictions and so much sorrow. You could pause there and put a period, but there's something important to me also that it says, because of the rudeness of your brethren. People did not treat you right. You got your feelings hurt. You might have felt forgotten. You hurt. You were broken. Your heart hurt so bad. Nevertheless, my little Jacob, you know the greatness of God. In verse number four. And, and, and what he can do with those situations. Yes. And, it, and, and it's interesting that because he's going to talk to him about um, redemption also, it makes you think, oh, maybe they've had a conversation in the past about Jacob's old own shortcomings too. So what you have here that I've never noticed before is you've got the wilderness types of afflictions, the afflictions that come to us because of other people, and the afflictions that come to us because of our own choices. It almost like blankets the kind of afflictions that we will experience in mortality. And, he's, and, and that truth that he says, you, you, you've seen afflictions and now you've seen what God can do with afflictions. And you're maybe beginning to understand why he allows them in the first place. Yes. And the, then all of a sudden you're going to get to verse four and he's going to say, listen, and you actually are blessed. You've realized what God can do. And now you can call yourself blessed. Mm. You've seen the afflictions. You've seen the mess. Some that you've caused, some that other people have caused, some that are the reality of your mortality. And you can consider yourself blessed because what God did with those afflictions. But I also think we need to skip to the future in Jacob's little life because I think that this makes this chapter all the more meaningful because Jacob is actually one of the only writers, I think in all of scripture, you would know better than me, that talks distinctly about anxiety. And I think there's something so beautiful in knowing that this little boy had an anxious heart. No wonder he was raised in the wilderness. Of course he had an anxious heart. I'm like, <laughs> me too, Mr. Jacob. But Lehi knew that little boy. And he knew that he wouldn't be there for the majority of his life and a lot of his future. And I bet he looked at that little anxious heart and he said, I'm going to teach you a few things that you should remember. Not just because you've had a hard past, but because you're going to have a hard future and I'm not going to be there for it. And when I read that and I realized that this isn't just simply a lesson on happiness, this is a personal message for a boy with an anxious heart mm. from a dad who knew him. It changed the way I read this chapter because it felt a little bit more personal to me. Like maybe something a heavenly dad wrote me because he knows my heart. And that I feel like I've gone through some hard things. And I think my anxiety is going to make me probably go through some hard things in the future. This chapter changed for me. And what's going to happen is he's going to go through and he's going to say, listen, now I just lost where I was. Well, he's going to say first, the last part, you've been redeemed. Uh, yes. By the Holy Messiah. All right. Mm -hmm. You should know that first. Yeah. Now let's talk about living 
out, your life is now. Now what? Yes. You didn't come to the earth to be saved. God didn't send you and then say, "Oh, I'm going to put you in a pit so I can rescue you." That wasn't His intention. The intention wasn't to go to earth to be saved. You'll watch that he keeps using the phrase purpose, that God had a wise purpose, and it's not to go and then come back. Sometimes we we teach it really simply like that. Because we're away, we want to return to his presence. But that's not why God sent us away in the first place. That's silly. That'd be silly if a father's like, I'm going to drive you to a park that's two hours away just to see if you can make it back. It's like, why would we do that? I was like, that's, a, I'm that's sure, the worst game I'm ever. Gonna come rescue, I'm going to come rescue you. And I was like, I know, but we're already, ho- like, we're already home. Like, why, <laughs> I'll just why, stay. Yeah. I'll just stay. There. God doesn't like create a, a tragic experience so that he can rescue his children from it. He had a grander purpose in mind that would require him to put them in a tragic experience that would need rescue. And I, heard and, someone I, say, and I think oh, this yeah, teaches go. it really well. This chapter just like lays that out really, really well. I heard someone say the other day, there were some lessons that our Heavenly Father knew we couldn't learn at home. Right. And, and there's the, that's the key. That's yeah. part of the key. That they, the Book of Mormon teaches, I think better than any other book of scripture. Mm-hmm. Is, hold on. Hold on. It's the lessons. He had lessons he wanted us to learn experiences he wanted us to have that couldn't be had there. But then all of a sudden there's this big risk because like, man, the place where they can learn it is a dangerous place of affliction, rudeness, and, and, and (laughs) self-destruction, you know, and it would need a redeem. So it would need a redeemer. I just like, so maybe that's kind of cool in this chapter. I've never noticed before. Like he's like, let me lay out a safety blanket first, a safety net first. Which first of all, I'm like, he did know that his little tiny boy did have anxiety because he needed to know that it was, he's like, you're covered. Yeah. You're You're good. You're okay. You're going to be redeemed by the savior. Now let's teach you about the wise purpose of why you're even here. Why would God, because maybe Jacob wakes up one morning in the middle of the desert and says, why would God ever do this? Why would he send any of us to a place like this? That doesn't equate to a good God to send us to a, to a, you know, to a, a desert place with rude family members, you know? <laughs> but then now Levi's going to lay out how it, it's an, that's an evidence of his, it actually is an evidence of his goodness. And I love that he knew, Lehi knew he had to be so real with Jacob and he wasn't afraid of that. He didn't avoid the fact that Jacob had a hard life. He actually played into it. He said, no, I know. I know what you've gone through. Verse number 11, he's going to go through and he's going to say, yeah, you actually, and I love that he calls him his firstborn in the wilderness, because I think automatically that is an empathetic intro to Jacob. I know where you came from. I know the life you've had. Yeah. yeah, I know your past. I know your story. And just so you know, there really is opposition in all things. I know that. You know that. You have really deeply experienced that. And he's going to go through and he's going to unpack that more and more and more. And Jacob must have been very familiar with this already. At least he must have been familiar with the heart. 
he must have known about the difficult parts because he's going to go through, look in verse 13, and there will be no righteous. If there's no righteousness, there is no happiness. If there's no righteousness nor happiness, there be no punishment nor misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. And if there is no God, we are not, neither the earth, for there could have been no creation of things. And for a second, you want to pause because you think that you're reading Dr. Seuss, not the scripture, because you're like, what is even happening right now? But all of a sudden, Lehi is teaching his son, there is going to be good and there is going to be bad, and we need them both. Mm-hmm. And the good is good because of the bad, and the bad is bad because of the good. They are both combined. You need them both. And that is actually evidence of God. The good and the bad, the, bad, the good and the bad are both showing you that no, there's actually is a God who's aware of the good and of the bad. And now, my sons, I speak unto you these things for your profit and learning. This is to help you figure out life. For there is a God. Trust me on that one. There is a God. And he created all things, both the heavens and the earth. Things that are in them are both things to act and to be acted upon. All of this is his. He was smart enough to plan for good and for bad. He didn't just think you were going to have a good life down here. He knew it was going to be difficult. He planned for that. Don't worry. You're not screwing up the plan. That was already in his head. And all of a sudden he's going to go through. You see both of these things. The more you read through chapter two, you can just highlight all the parts that he talks about good and bad. And it's going to be everywhere. Verse 18, and had become miserable forever. He sought to take the way the misery of all mankind. This is part of the plan. The devil brought all this misery. There's difficult things. There's been evil and bad and devils. You know that. That's part of it. But also... I need you to know that from the beginning, he talks about Adam and Eve, which I love because he wants you to remember his plan from the beginning was good and bad. He said, I know that there will be difficult and there will be rejoicing. There will be tears and there will be moments of dancing. I plan from that from the very first person on earth. I have planned for that. And he goes through, he's going to say, listen, they actually realized that there is life because of the good and the bad. For all of a sudden, if you go to verse 23, they could have remained in a state of innocence. They would have had no joy for they knew no misery, doing no good for they knew no sin. But behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. It's such a humbling verse. I come back to that verse a lot when I uh, push up against uh, commandments or I push up against questions that I have answers to. Why doesn't this make sense? This seems to be a contradiction. And I love coming back to verse 24 and remembering the question that Job, when Job was asking God all those questions and God says, were you there when I hung the stars? Just to remind him This is all happening under the purposes of him who knows all things. Like, and it's all happening in his wisdom. Remember who's the designer of of the plan and the purpose. Mm. And that makes me want to highlight it 18 times more because it also makes me want to think, not only was God wise enough 
for the beginning and the end of the earth, but also for the beginning of my story and the end of it as well. Yeah, you see that in verse 21. He's like, so I lengthened your days because I knew you would need more time mm. to experience what I wanted you to, to experience. You didn't, you, again, you didn't just come to... He, it's interesting, he lays out both dilemmas. Where he's just like, had Adam and Eve stayed in the garden, they wouldn't have known good because there was no bad. And they wouldn't have known happiness because there was no sad. So that wasn't an option. And he says, you know, no one could have progressed. No one could have experienced there, right? He says, but leaving was a problem <laughs> because now they're under the influence of the devil and they've fallen and they're, you know, and they're carnal, all those things that are going to come up. And he's just like, and I, and I solved that one too. It's just interesting that he's just like, I planned for this. Yeah, right. I did you, it. I took like, care of the whole thing. The whole thing looks, chapter two feels like a blueprint, you know, of God. Where for you're just sure. like looking at it all and you're just like, do you see all this? And I love big scale and small scale. Mm. That big scale enough for Adam and Eve till the end of time, but small enough scale that a dad who knew his son's anxious heart could look at it and say, oh, you're telling me that God knew that my start was in the wilderness? And it was messy. And he knows the end is going to be chapters written in anxious hearts. Mm -hmm. This one's for me. And he's going to go through and he's going to say, you know this, like the back of your hand probably. And if you don't, you're about to love it. Adam felt that men might be and men are that they might have joy. This is a plan of joy. Mm -hmm. This is a joyful story. A joyful story does not mean that there will not be affliction and tribulation and anxiety and sad days and crying yourself to sleep when your head hits the pillow. That's not saying that. It's saying this is a plan of joy. The good and the bad, the sin and the redemption, the hard times and the good times, this is the plan. And you might have joy. You get to choose the joy. Yeah. This is your call here. Yeah. If you're going to see it like a plan of joy. And, and add it, man, you're just giving a really, really rich definition of joy in listing all of those things. The joy is not the absence of those, but joy is the overcoming of those. Or joy is God consecrating those to a certain end. It's, and that would be like so valuable to understand. Because someone may, be, may feel robbed of joy because of affliction and would need to understand, no, joy is God consecrating affliction to a greater gain. That's its very definition. Which becomes even more important because the rest of the chapter he's going to go through and it's going to be a choice. You can choose what you believe. You can choose to... All of a sudden, verse 27. Oh, Choose, can we do yeah. 26 real fast before yep. we do 27? Because I want people to see this idea of salvation, of redemption, and exaltation, right? And then. Right, right. So 26 yep. is, right, the Messiah came, in the, or is coming, <laughs> for <laughs> us he came, in the fullness of time to redeem the children of men from the fall. Okay? We've all been redeemed from the fall. We've all been saved. And because they're redeemed from the fall, you are now free forever to choose how you, who you want to become and how you want to live out your life. I just want people to see that in connection with... It's not the, either or, right. it's both. Yeah, we have a rich doctrine of salvation and exaltation as Latter-day Saints. 
But sometimes we overlook the redemption part because we move on to the becoming part, the path of exaltation. But it needs to begin with, you've been redeemed, past tense, from the fall. The Messiah came to redeem you. Now that you're redeemed from the fall and the problem that you're in has been solved, you're now free to choose who you would like to become, the relationship you'd like to have with the Redeemer, and what you'd like your life today and your life forever to look like. And they go hand in hand. That happens in one verse. Yes, yes. It's the same plan. And it makes me think that I wonder for the rest of Jacob's life, if he looked back on this conversation with his dad and it shaped the way he told his story, the way he saw his life, the way he viewed everything. And I wonder because his dad's like, this is his dad's last words. You look at the very last verse I just skipped. So I don't even remember what number it is. 30. I love that the dad's worst last words are, I have chosen the good part. In this entire plan, I have chosen the good part. In my bad days, I have chosen the good part. In the journeys that felt miserable, I have chosen the good part. That's how he started chapter one. When I made mistakes, I chose the good part. I chose apology. I chose try again, like all throughout. The good part means like so so many things that we've learned throughout this chapter. And I wonder if for the rest of Jacob's life, through the anxious days and through the days when he didn't feel like he was good enough and the days that he remembered his past and felt like maybe he didn't have a fair chance, I wonder if those words played in his head. Hmm. My dad chose the good part. I want to too. Yeah. And that doesn't disqualify the bad days. I'm going to say this really fast because I know that we're going really long, but I just barely like Literally two days ago, I was reading in my mission journal and I came upon this little tiny entry and it was so small. And it said, I think today's the first day I ever experienced anxiety. And then I talked about how I didn't want to go back to my apartment. I made my companion go eat at In-N-Out because I didn't want to be in my tiny apartment and for it to be so quiet. And then I, this is a true story and so embarrassing. I legit think I ate at In-N-Out for probably like out of the, I don't even know how many meals on your mission that you have, like lunches in a week. But I know that I was at In-N-Out probably five of the seven days of the week. (laughs) Like I made us go to In-N-Out. I didn't even really like In-N-Out that much, but I just had to be somewhere with people because I was so anxious. And I wrote in my journal like five days later on Saturday night, I said, I got a blessing tonight. And the blessing said that the rest of my mission would be filled with joy. And it's so interesting to me now thinking about that lesson because I actually didn't even remember that week of eating at in and out every single week, every single day during lunch because I couldn't go back to a quiet apartment because my heart was so anxious and I had never experienced that before in my life. But I can promise you that I remember the joy. Hmm. That's the word I use to describe my mission is the most joyful experience of my life. And that is not excluding the hard or the difficult or the mistakes or the problems. Notwithstanding your afflictions. It actually includes them. And it makes that word mean something more to me. Hmm. I love the joy more because it includes those moments. It tells that story too. Mm-hmm. And that's the story that God writes. It's a joy story. And that includes all of those things, the good, the bad, the ugly, the mistakes, the problems, the redemption, the joy, includes all of that. Mm-hmm. 
That's his story. And we get to choose the good part. Yeah. So, so that advice in 28, I would, <laughs> if I were you, look to the great redeemer. I mean, another name. Look to the great mediator, he says in, in 28. The great things he's done, that he's your God, your redeemer, the, the, from the creation of the world until now, what he can do with afflictions, that he came to the world to suffer and to die, to his merits, his mercy, his grace. Look to him first. Hearken unto his commandments. Be faithful to his words and choose eternal life. Choose the good part. Choose living and experiencing and being redeemed and loved by him. You can do that in the wilderness or you have another choice which we're not even going to go into because... This is what I would do if I were you. Live joy. Put it all at his feet and live joy. Jesus is the best part of the story. Yeah. You might as well choose that. Yeah. (laughs) All right, y'all. We'll see you next week. This audio was taken from a YouTube video from our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube at Don't Miss This. Also, sign up for our newsletter at don'tmissthisstudy.com and you can follow us on Instagram at Emily Bell Freeman and at Mr. Dave Butler. Thanks for listening. Bye.